Welcome to Gruesome, your horrific true crime podcast. This is episode 33, Jacob Wetterling, and professional procrastinator Connie is going to take us through it. So it's a fun fact for ADHD uh, sufferers like myself, we work best under pressure. You can give me 10 weeks or two days or two hours, and it's all going to be done at the same time. <laughs> It's going to work out no matter no out. matter what. Uh, okay, so ever since I was interested in true crime, I have always had the dream that I would solve a cold case based on the research that I found. You know, I've been watching SVU long before it was probably appropriate that I was watching a show like that. But like the idea that someone like us could solve one of these cases, could it be too crazy to be true or could it happen? It can. It happens. But like new eyes, fresh eyes see it. And they're like, well, what about this? It's my dream. (laughs) Well, October 22nd, 1989, 11-year-old Jacob Wetterling, his younger brother Trevor, and Jacob's friend Aaron Larson called Jacob's mom, Patty, who was at a dinner party to ask permission to ride their bikes to go get a movie around the corner. It was around 9 p.m., so his mom said, no, it's after dark, cars won't be able to see you, which, side note, we definitely need to bring back dinner parties. Because that sounded fun. (laughs) Dinner parties. It just sounds so fancy now. Yeah. When they hung up the phone, they did what any other group of boys would do. They devised a new plan. They called their parents back. Only this time, they were like, we're going to talk to dad. So they talked to Jacob's dad, Jerry. They told him they would have flashlights. They would wear reflective vests. They would be together. They would stay together. And the video store was only four blocks away. So can we go? So Jerry is like, you know what? They everything seems like it's gonna work out. Dads always relent. They're always like, whatever I have to do the least amount of work with. Okay, dad stuff. Yeah, but they they are from the small town of Saint Joseph, Minnesota, which in 1989 it only had a population of 4,000. So it's a small rural, our favorite word, uh, town, and it's safe four blocks away. What could go wrong? So many things. So many things. So the boys head to the corner store four blocks away. They rent the naked gun, and then they make their trip back home. They let them rent the naked gun? How? <laughs> I guess it was the 1989. 80s. Yeah. <laughs> What's that, Pamela Anderson? My brother used to watch Barbed Wire. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, miss it. Mm. That's why we are the way we are. True. They got onto a particularly dark street on the way back when a man dressed in dark clothing and a mask jumped out of a driveway. He had a revolver and he pointed at the boys and ordered them to throw their bikes into the ditch and lie face down on the ground or be shot. Terrified, the boys complied. They did exactly what the man told them. Then the masked man asked each of the boys what their ages were. They each replied, Trevor telling him that he was 10. And Jacob and Aaron replied with 11. The man looked at Trevor, told him to get up and run towards the woods, not look back or he would be shot. So Trevor gets up. He starts running home. He then instructed Aaron and Jacob to turn around so he could see their faces. He examines them and then looks at Aaron and gives him the same instruction that he gave Trevor. Take off running. Don't look back or you'll be shot. Which I can't even imagine the thoughts going through all three of these boys' heads. I can't imagine Trevor having the guilt and fear that he must have felt running away as his brother was back there or the fear that Aaron felt as he was told to run because 
I mean, obviously the man preferred the way Jacob looked over the way he looked. Yeah. The last Aaron saw of Jacob, he was being dragged into the woods by his elbow by the masked man. Trevor and Aaron sprinted home. They told Rochelle Jerzik, she was a neighbor, that they had asked to come babysit Jacob and Trevor's younger sister, Carmen, who was eight. So they literally thought of everything. They're like, we'll get the neighbor over. She can come watch Carmen. Uh, Rochelle called her father and, and her father immediately called 911. The dispatcher put out a call on the police radio and soon the entire town was looking for Jacob. Deputy Bruce Bechtold was the first officer at the house. He was trying to ask questions to two terrified boys. He wanted the boys to take him to the scene of the kidnapping, thinking that maybe the boys were playing a joke or maybe Jacob had been hurt in an accident and they were covering it up, which like, fuck off for that being your first. <laughs> yeah. Ugh, I get it. It's the 80s. Yep. But it's still like, that's how this, that's how these cases get further along than they need to be. Than they need to yep. Have gone. And their parents weren't home yet. They're, you know, they had called, the, obviously, like they're on their way back, but they just hadn't made it there yet. Aaron and Trevor only agree to go with the deputy to the scene when Rochelle's dad, Merle, who had been a longtime neighbor, agreed to go with them. Sheriff Charlie Graft arrived at the scene of the kidnapping around 10 p.m. and quickly called in members of the volunteer fire department to assist in the search for Jacob. And I should add, it only took six minutes from the time the call came in until the police officer started to arrive. So there wasn't like a big, yeah. they just arrived at the house versus arriving at the scene where uh, Jacob had been taken. Okay. The men all walk through the woods in close formation, similar to the David Mirhofer case that we had just covered a few weeks ago. So like they were all just thinking if we stay like close together, we'll cover the entire area. There'll be nowhere for they to go for mm -hmm. them to go. And it's probably dark. So mm -hmm. it's 10 o'clock at night. So all of this is happening less than 90 minutes after the abduction occurred. The FBI had already been contacted by this point, and Sheriff Graff had requested the use of helicopters from the State Crime Bureau. The helicopters searched everywhere, getting so low that it nearly clipped power lines. Searchers were on the ground. They found footprints in a nearby gravel driveway near the abduction site, appearing to come from an adult-sized shoe and a small shoe. There were also tire tracks in that same driveway, but it was unclear if these came from the crime because neither of the boys had ever mentioned seeing a car because the man had literally just jumped out at them. Logically, it was likely that it came from the crime because a car would be a necessity because there weren't many places near the site to hide without being found by the search team. There was no sign of Jacob found that night other than his bike still being in the ditch. In a very controversial move, just six hours after the abduction took place, police officers called off the search. What? According to statistics, there's still a 25% chance of finding Jacob alive up until this point. And I can't even imagine being Patty and Jerry, like the police giving you the mindset, like, all right, well, we'll you know, we're going to call off the search for now. Okay, so they didn't call it off, like, permanently. They were just like, we they, have to stop tonight. The police, the police officers did not canvas the area like that again Ugh. like you mean when it was daytime yeah exactly. when they might have seen something else that they missed in the night so patty and jerry are like we like to have the hope like we want the hope that you know jacob is still alive but they were getting the vibes from the sheriff being like you know that's probably not the case I don't know. It just doesn't, that whole, that doesn't sit well with me. For one, it's 3 a.m. So you don't have that much, there's not that much more time before daylight. Just keep looking. Like, and also, and you called don't, in all, these are their, their parents and you're just, yeah. eh, we're just gonna, how rude. Exactly. 
And it didn't sit well with me, and it didn't sit well with the town of St. Joseph. Hundreds and hundreds of residents mounted their own searches, driving the streets, walking back roads, ditches, cornfields, forests, gravel pits. Flyers with his face were plastered everywhere, windows, parked cars, telephone poles. White ribbons were worn as a symbol of hope for Jacob. Five days after Jacob disappeared, radio stations played his favorite song, Red Grammar's Listen, at 7 a.m., along with a message from his mother begging for his safe return. A week after that, thousands formed a human chain down a main road in St. Joseph, despite it being freezing. Two players from the Minnesota Twins baseball team attended wearing blue warm-up jackets that had been embroidered with Jacob's initials. Meanwhile, dozens of officers from different agencies began to arrive to investigate the actual crime itself. Sheriff Graft is reported to have had contacted every agency he had access to to see like, if they could have other resources that they didn't have to try to figure out what happened that night. The FBI, state troopers, National Guard, local cops all came from all around the state of Minnesota. More searches happened. Horseback riders searched. ATVs were ridden through fields, woods, and dirt roads, but nothing. There was no sign of Jacob. And this is late 80s, early 90s was like the big stranger danger panic. And the abduction of Jacob Wetterling struck panic across the country. PSAs were released telling kids not to trust strange men and to do everything they could to not get into a car with someone. The idea that a man could just jump out of the woods and snatch a child in a small town had parents hysterical. Yeah, no doubt. Parents started for the first time fingerprinting their kids just for worst case scenarios. The small town of St. Joseph had become a ghost town. Bike racks that were once full of kids' bikes outside of stores, schools were now bare. Parents didn't let their kids go anywhere, and if they did, they took them. They kept their kids close, terrified that something like this could happen in their town. And like, if they haven't found the man that did it, maybe he's still out there. Yeah. Four months after Jacob went missing, his parents, Jerry and Patty, formed the Jacob Wetterling Foundation with the goal to advocate for child safety. His mom was and still is incredibly active with this foundation. She gave interviews. She pushed for legislation. Their efforts were successful when the Jacob Wetterling Act was passed, which was the base for the laws that we know as Megan's Law, Mm -hmm. the um, Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act. It was the first federal legislation that mandated registered sex offenders. It was the first state offender registry. The Wetterlings did everything they could to educate and prevent what happened to their son from happening to anyone else's child. And keep in mind, this is four months and they still have no idea what happened. Yeah. So you're asking Connie what happened? You haven't told us anything. <laughs> Any, you're you're any giving more all the news. <laughs> the events surrounding the case and the events leading up to the case draw a lot of criticism even today. You see, when Jacob was abducted, the case was looked at specifically as if it were an isolated case. And honestly, what's crazy to me about this is because this was such a multi-agent, like multi-agency effort looking mm-hmm. for Jacob. It's it's crazy to me that patterns weren't recognized and the conversations about any other similar cases were never had. Yeah. I'm and I'm gonna go over the timeline and information for before and after the case. It's gonna sound kind of confusing. Just hang with me. I promise it all circles. There's one big giant circle with this. And after I'm done, I want our listeners to head 
to our Instagram, like once we have this post and tell me what they think regarding this, because as usual, I have big feelings. But I want to know what your thoughts are regarding the different cases and how they were connected and how they were handled. So we're going to rewind a couple of years to May 17th, 1987. A boy reports to the police that a man in Painesville, Minnesota, grabbed him from his bike and groped him. The man left behind a baseball cap that would later be tested for DNA evidence. This case was one of eight that Painesville law enforcement investigators would document from August 1986 to fall 1988. Painesville is less than 30 minutes from St. Joseph. I was going to say, how far away is Painesville to St. Joseph? So you may be wondering, why am I bringing up molestation cases 30 minutes away from Jacob's or, you know, there's a random guy who was grabbing little boys off their bikes. But I mean, like they, he let them all go. And like, yeah. whereas that was not the situation with Jacob. Well, less than 48 hours after Jacob was abducted, a local high school sophomore walks into the Stearns County Sheriff's Office with his dad and asks to speak to an investigator on the case. He tells the investigator that in the last two years, there had been roughly eight molestations near the town in the nearby town of Paintsville. And that two of the assaults that were that happened were after someone grabbed the boys off their bike, threatened them with a knife. The boy continues to say that the quick military and proficient style that these attacks had sounds similar to what happened with Jacob. He tells the officers, you need to speak to Officer Bill Drager at the Painesville Police Department. So you would think like, holy shit, we're going to follow up on this right away. Yeah, like I'm going to call him to today, to, it tonight. It took three months for them to pursue this lead. Why? I don't... Oh, that's so annoying. What did they think? They were just going to solve it on their own? That sounds like a pride thing. I... I don't... I don't know. And, like, we know that there is no difference that serial offenders start somewhere and 90% of the time they progress until it gets out of hand and something horrible happens. I don't know if they were like, um, a kidnapping and someone groping you is not the same. I don't know if they didn't take it as serious or if they were like, it's just not the same. It's it's different, which that closed-minded way of thinking is exactly what's been prevents you what, from finding things out, yeah. And this is not going to be the only case we cover where this is the mindset. So fast-forwarding or I guess rewinding again, nine months before Jacob was abducted on January 13th, 1989, 12-year-old Jared Sherrill told investigators that he was kidnapped and sexually assaulted at 945 in Cold Spring, Minnesota, 10 minutes from St. Joseph. He said that his abductor was wearing camouflage fatigues and had a police scanner in his car. Jared was walking home from a local skating rink. He had stopped for a malt at a cafe when a man stopped him asking him for directions. When Jared was talking to the man, he forced him into his car. He told him that he had a gun and that he wasn't afraid to use it. He described the man as having a distinct, low, raspy voice. When he was, a f- when he was finished assaulting Jared, he told him, Run away, don't look back, or I will shoot you. He ended the horrifying encounter by following up with, if they come close to finding out who I am, I will find you and I will kill you. These poor boys. Yeah, like it's it's awful. It's traumatizing. On January 16th, 1989, investigators named Danny Heinrich is a suspect in Jared's case. 
Because he didn't wear a mask, he was able to be identified from a photo lineup by Jared. He was brought in and questioned. Apparently, when his vehicle was located, it Jared had said he thought the vehicle had a luggage rack. Mm-hmm. That detail from a terrified 12-year-old boy, they look at the car and they're like, mm, doesn't no have luggage. a luggage rack. Uh, people encode things differently based on the trauma. Like, how would he... Uh... And that's why it's important focused on another thing to. Yeah. And that's why it's important to like, I don't say question victims until they're blue. But like you have to, you're not going to get the most accurate statement when they are full on traumatized. They have to have time to process some of that. And then that's why there are people come back and they're like, oh, I I remember. I remember this. I remember this. But because of that, they're like, okay, he's not a suspect. That face you're going to have through a lot of this episode. This annoyed face. This just ugh, so annoyed. So Jared recalled being questioned by police so intensely that he broke down in tears. He had been told and his parents had been told that they couldn't come into the interview room. They just needed to talk to them, by, talk to Jared by himself for a few. And they grilled him on how clear he was on the details that he had given, which they that's, <laughs> I already used my F word, but forget that. Like, he what he had been through was traumatic enough and then he was grilled like he wasn't yeah, didn't know what he was talking about at that point no. you're making everything worse for this victim like what are you um, trying to prove i should also add that danny heinrich was a member of the minnesota national guard where they wear camo fatigues he was never charged in Jared's abduction or assault. And um, that following year on December 13th, 1989, the FBI met with him, with Jared, to create a sketch of his kidnapper. And the sketch looked identical to Danny Heinrich. How old so, is Danny Heinrich? It, it seems like when we're talking about these cases with dudes grabbing children and like molesting them. Or kidnapping them. They're always young. They're always like 20. He was 26 at this time. Yeah. Like not so, all the time, obviously, but it seems like they're either in their 20s or they're like in their 60s. I absolutely agree. I agree. And it seems like when they start, when the cases like this are when they're in their early 20s, that you can pretty much guarantee they're going to murder someone in their lifetime. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. Because a lot of these guys, I mean, you have the stereotypical like uh, Chester, you know, like you're creepy. Like we, you look at people, you're like, okay, and you're well, like, stay I away from the, that guy. I, I get, get the vibes. vibes. But there are also the people who mask it so well that you do not know how big of a disgusting pervert they are. Yeah. So three days later, on December 16th, 1989, the FBI interviewed Heinrich for the first time, questioning him about the disappearance of uh, Jacob as well as the assault on Jared. He told investigators that he didn't remember where he was on the days of those disappearances or the kidnappings, and he denied knowledge of either of them. He said that he had lived on 121 Washburn Avenue in Painesville until November 1989, and then he moved into his father's house. That... Washburn Avenue, mm-hmm. three, four block radius of where all of the other molestations were taking place. Lived smack dab in the center. And he, did his dad live in St. Joseph? No, his dad lived on the outskirts of Painesville towards St. Joseph, but okay. it wasn't it wasn't in like St. in town. Joseph. Okay. So now we're up to the point where the investigators of Jacob's case are 
following, finally following up on the lead of the eight cases, the, the eight Paintsville cases that and they're like, okay, we're going to talk to these officers. And I say like investigating the Paintsville cases lightly because every single victim of the Paintsville eight is what they were called. Mm-hmm. They feel very strongly that if investigators had taken their assault seriously, we wouldn't even be covering any of this today. Why wouldn't they take it seriously? That seems like a very serious thing for a small town to be happening. Yeah, they call them cluster attacks. Like if you are a safe small town and then all of a sudden you have a cluster in the same exact area, you would think you'd be like, okay. Someone in this small four block radius is causing a ruckus. At this point, there was no sex offender registry. And it's like, are you going to knock on every door? You should, but they didn't. You know. So in mid-January 1990, Heinrich had allowed investigators to remove the rear tires of his car to be compared to the tire tracks found where Jacob was abducted. Right after he, um, they sent the tire tracks to the FBI crime lab. Um, In November, so literally like three weeks after Jacob was abducted, the crime lab had, there was a report that said that the um, tires from those tracks were connected to one of two types of Sears tires. That's it. No surprise here, but the tracks appeared to be a match. Mm -hmm. Heinrich's car appeared to be a match to the tires of the scene, but the track, the tires would be sent off to the crime lab just to be sure. Law enforcement officers were also able to track down the car that Heinrich had when Jared was abducted, and they traumatized this kid again because he gets inside. They have him get inside the car. Jeez, Louise. Yeah, and he's like, "Okay, this feels like this feels like the car that it I had been taken in." To further add to the seemingly damning evidence, like I said, all of those cluster that cluster of attacks had happened within a three to four block radius from where this shit had lived. And he had moved, he did not move to his dad's in November. He moved to his dad's in October prior to Jacob's disappearance. So that same day, he was brought in for a polygraph test. He failed it. On January 12th, 1990, they began to trail him. They had assigned a surveillance to him. He led the investigators on a series of twists and turns outside the outskirts of Painesville before turning his lights off and shaking his surveillance. Jeez Louise. Right? Something that Jared had explained. How much more damning can you get than that? Exactly. Exactly. That's what I said. The whole time I'm like screaming like, I could give this case and this evidence to my son who is 11 and be like, solve this. And he'd be like, oh, it's this guy. Duh. Noise. Duh. But Jared had explained to them when they he was like saying like how the guy was driving. He said he drove like very – he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew how to like get away from cars. And even the investigators were like, oh, weird. It's suspicious that like an innocent person would try so hard to try to shake a surveillance. What the you hell? Know, so weird that an innocent person would do that. When they find him again, because they do – they trail him for two more days before they just abandon. They're like, okay. He went to like a bar, a store, and like, they're like, all right. They weren't like, hey, where did you go this time that you shook us? Mm-mm. You would think. Yeah. On January 18th, 1990, carpet and seat samples were taken from Heinrich's impounded car. And on January 23rd, 1990, 
Authorities obtained a search warrant for his dad's house, where, he, like I said, he had moved in October of 1989. During the search warrant, shoe prints appearing to have the same pattern as the prints that were taken from the scene where Jacob was abducted were lifted. They also sent those to the FBI crime lab for analyzing two police scanners, scanner documents, black boots, a brown hat, and camo, camo clothes were also taken. Everything that Jared had said, everything that the other boys had said. And I'm, I was already frustrated by this point, but this is where I get like, what the fuck? And I'm going to say it there because it is, it, okay. On January 26, 1990, Heinrich stood in a lineup of six men in front of two boys who had reported seeing a suspicious car in front of Jacob's house a week before he was abducted. That was all they knew about. They're like, oh, yeah, a week before there was this car. And Jared, none of them could pick Heinrich from the lineup, but they did not do a voice lineup. Didn't like say, hey, what is this guy's no, voice? It was just like, you? look at him. And you the said he had a distinct, low, raspy low, voice. Low, raspy voice. And that's also what Trevor and Aaron had said, that he had a distinct, like he had a very low, raspy voice. They didn't do the voice lineup. Men were asked to speak. Trevor and Aaron weren't asked to be there. None of the other eight victims were asked to be there. Yeah. Just these random and, kids that yeah. didn't happen to. And I just feel like this is the part where investigators miss their best chance at connecting all of these crimes. Yeah, get all those kids in there. Yeah. At this point, they are still, the investigator's like, okay, yeah, all of this is separate. And it's like, how? How do you think it's separate? That same day, the FBI crime lab said that the tires were consistent, but not an exact match, which also extremely frustrating. Close enough for me, friend. There's only two kinds. Yeah, exactly. And I should add that the only two cars in the area to have those tire tracks, even remotely close, were Heinrich's and another car that didn't run, like that was (laughs) inoperable in the entire area. So on February 9th, 1980, or sorry, February 9th, 1990, my first birthday, (laughs) the fibers that were found on the snowsuit that Jared was wearing matched the fibers that were recovered from the car Heinrich was driving the the one that had oh <laughs> he was finally arrested in connection with the kidnapping and sexual assault of Jared. He claimed he was not guilty that he had been framed. No one believes you, Heinrich. The FBI investigators who arrested him and and uh, conducted the interview were inexperienced. They picked him up late at night. He was hammered drunk. That those FBI agents had no idea that he was also a suspect in the Painesville assault cases, like the Painesville Eight. Mm-hmm. That they had FBI profilers there to observe the investigation. They didn't do a report. They told the detectives, uh, "I don't think this guy is guilty," so he was released. What? The fibers they match. Yeah, they just released it. him because he was drunk. I don't understand. This is just the luckiest man on the planet? Literally the luckiest man. He slips away. By 1991, all the items that were taken from his father's house in the search warrant were returned to him, and all of the cases go cold. And That's like, what, 10 cases? Yeah, all 10 of them. And the FBI files on this case 
you can the sheriff's report has like re- released all their stuff on it but the fbi cases are like sealed and it's like probably because, because y'all messed up i maybe because they're dummies but even, but even to other enforcement the fbi cases have not been released like when they're like trying to do other like you'll see it later on but okay. they have not released these and I'm assuming because it is such a botched situation. <laughs> like, we done goofed. We can't show you these. Oops. We can't show you how bad we messed up. Yeah. So in 2004, that's how far we're going into the future, coworkers come forward and it's like, hey, because they had they would periodically re- release like age progression of the sketches that have been released. And they, coworkers came forward and they're like, hey, that kind of looks like a man that we work with. The man's name was Dan Razier. He just so happened to, his driveway was the driveway where the tire tracks were found, mm-hmm. where the shoe prints were. He'd been interviewed many times. He refused to give DNA samples because he's like, I did not do this. Areas of his farm were excavated. But the real drama came when he was publicly named as a suspect by – or a person of interest, I should say, by the new sheriff, John Sanner, in 2010. So this went on for six years that he was, like, harassed. He was a music teacher who had lived, like, this normal life. And he said that after he was publicly named, he was treated as the person that, that had abducted Jake. Yeah. He later sued – Sheriff Sanner for naming him as a person of interest. Remember he said that he was in that Joanne Yeats case when the yeah, other I like instantly, eccentric, yeah, eccentric teachers. I thought that immediately. You're like, mm, you're close enough, and you're just weird enough. Yeah, you're just weird enough. So, so other teachers were like, "Hey, this looks like yeah, uh, yeah." Mm. He I said get that why was- they. I get why they would because he would have been around kids, and so I can see the connection. If it did, and it was like his him. driveway. Like, yeah. I can see it, but still to, like, publicly name when you have no evidence. Uh, Yeah, and it's been how many years? 2004, six years at that point. Yeah, but even from 1990, like, you're doing age progressions. Yeah, and then 10 years later is when John Sanner, the new sheriff, was like, oh, yeah, this is our person of interest. He said that he was What about that other asshole? Yeah, he was secretly recorded. They dove, like, into details of his love life to see, like, what kind of – Yeah. like Yeah. He had even agreed to do an interview under hypnosis, which I don't think I would ever do that because who knows what's in the deep, You won't give DNA, but you'll do an interview under hypnosis? That seems Mm -hmm. weird, too. Yeah. (sighs) I digress. He had nothing to do with Jacob's abduction. So more time passes. And I should add, this sheriff, one of the big – I guess, like, their reasoning for this case being so grossly mishandled at times is sheriffs are not held to the same type of, like, efficiency numbers as police officers are. So this was handled by a sheriff's department. Sheriffs are elected officials. Mm -hmm. They, if a new sheriff comes in, it's kind of like to the rest of the old stuff. So he came in and he was like, Everything about this case has been bullshit. It's been handled horribly. And I'm going to tell you exactly where all of this stuff went wrong. And he did this like in 2018. And it was like he opened this whole can of worms. It's like this is how everything went wrong. This is who messed up. This is how they messed up. This is the exact step that was wrong. Yeah. 
kind of he retired. Yeah, he retired in 2017. So it was like the year after that. He's like, let me just tell you. <laughs> this <laughs> you know is what, what I happened. found out? That's probably why he ran for sheriff. <laughs> I'm going to find everything out and then reveal it to the public. So now we're going to enter Joy Baker. She is going to be another woman we nominate for sainthood. Saint Joy. She had been 22 when Jacob was abducted. She remembered the missing posters, the ongoing theories, the pleads from Patty to bring him home, and it haunted her. She said one day she was sitting there. She got in her car. She drove to the abduction site. Then she went to the corner store, and she was retracing her steps, and she thought, would I? Is this too far for kids? And then she was like, I probably wouldn't let my kids. And then she's like, wait, I have to remember, 1989 was a different time. She, so she decided that she was going to find answers and she was going to give Patty and Jerry answers. So she started an investigation. She started a blog whose, like, the sole mission was, I'm going to solve this case. You go, Joy Baker. Yeah, girl. She read about Jared and his case and how he had came back forward in 2004 to recount what happened to him, to be like, hey, I think our cases are connected. He kept advocating. He kept you know, good for you, Jared. Yeah. She reached out to him to interview him and the two of them performed or performed. (laughs) The two of them formed the second best dynamic duo, second to us. (laughs) Uh, They worked together to piece together evidence to speak to other victims. All of them told the same story. Run or I'll blow your head off was what the last thing said to them. They harassed the sheriff's office, the sheriff's office to take their evidence seriously, and they blogged about it every step of the way. The sheriff said these are isolated cases. They're not related. They spoke with Patty, who had no idea there was such an assault cluster until Joy had blogged about it. What yeah. the? But they're minors. Yeah, so it's sealed. They got Jacob's story on John Walsh's CNN show, The Hunt. The episode included Jared's case as well as Jacob's and compared the two cases side by side. The CNN media coverage was just the push that investigators needed to reopen the case. It was finally like, all right, fine. I guess I'll do it. We'll do it. Just because the Hollywood bigwigs were like, look, look at this. 26 years worth of forensic advancement proved helpful when DNA evidence from Jared's sexual assault case was retested in 2015. Who did it ding to? Heinrich. Ding, ding, ding. Yep. Danny Heinrich. And although the statute of limitations was up, nine-year statute of limitations on assault cases, and he wouldn't be tried for the assault, it was enough to get a search warrant for his home again. Only this time, they found 19 ringed binders filled with child pornography, videos of kids playing at parks and riding their bikes because he lived a block away from a middle school. Oh, my God. Bins of boys' clothing, as well as newspaper clippings of Jacob's abduction, as well as taped news segments regarding it. Ew. And so he was... mm -hmm, He was immediately arrested. At this point, they knew... That they had the man who abducted Jacob. So where is Jacob? So now, and honestly, like, Jared should have so much, like, knowing that you're you're not going to get justice for your case, but still, like, pushing forward because you can help someone else. That's just, that's so 
that's a that I don't even have the words for it. That's just so great. And it takes and it's sad though that he had to yeah. do that. Mm-hmm. Especially after the way he was treated by law enforcement. Yeah, absolutely. He was traumatized and then still went on to help solve it. So investigators pulled Heinrich in and out of jail because they kept him locked up until his trial. They didn't let him go. And they kept pushing, like, we know you did this. Like, why don't you tell us this? Like, come on. And finally, he said, it was about a year later, he agreed to take a plea deal saying he would take investigators to where he buried Jacob if murder, the murder charge, would not be on the table. How old was he at this point? It's like 26 years after he was 26? He's like 53. He's 53. Okay. So he could still get put away for like... 40 for child porn and stuff like that, right? Oh, man, just so. (laughs) Before they agreed to it, they call Patty and Jerry and they tell him, tell them, we have the man. He said that he murdered Jacob. He will take us to where Jacob is, but the murder charge cannot be on the table. And I guess prior to this, he had like gone back and forth like, okay, I'll take you. Okay, I won't take you. And investigators knew that without this plea deal, he would flake and they would not find where Jacob was. He had said that he only wanted to be charged for the child pornography charges. What about and that, like abduction? Nothing? Just the, He said just the murder, so he couldn't. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Go ahead. Sorry, I'm interrupting you. So they hesitated, but then they and it, like they've agreed because for the last it's 27 years at this point, like a they want few their weeks away, kid back. They said all they have ever wanted to know was what happened to their son and where he was. So on September 1st, 2016, Heinrich led investigators exactly where he had buried Jacob's body. A red jacket was unearthed and the Wetterlings confirmed that it had belonged to Jacob. On September 3rd, 2016, the announcement was made that Jacob's remains had been found. Following the discovery of Jacob's body at a hearing at the U.S. District Court in Minneapolis, Heinrich provided the grisly details of what happened the night that Jacob was abducted because they wanted to know what happened to their son. Now, trigger warning, it's awful. So I'm not going to give all the details because I don't feel like they're, it's a necessity, but I'm going to give a little bit of them. He described how on that October night in 1989, he saw three boys pass by on bikes in the middle, like on a cul-de-sac, and he turned his car around and waited for them. He said that he took Jacob to his car where he handcuffed him and put him in the front passenger seat when Jacob asked him, what did I do wrong? And he didn't respond to him. He said that he had his scanner on and drove out of ta- out of the town of St. Joseph, and then he heard a lot of police activity starting to come over the radio because, again, six minutes yeah, on the call quick. So he decided to head to Painesville. He told Jacob to dunk down, duck down, and lean over in the seat. He described the route that they took, and it ended with him pulling to a gravel pit in a grove of trees. He said that he stopped the car, got out, uncuffed him. He took Jacob to the edge of the grove of trees and made him undress. He then described the assault that took place, and again, I'm not going to get into that. Following this, Jacob told him that he was cold and asked him if he could get dressed. And then he said, are you taking me home? And Heinrich responded that he couldn't take him home because it was so far away and it was in a different town. So Jacob started to cry because he's scared. Yeah, he's a little boy. Heinrich's like, no, don't cry. He said that on the way back to the car, there was a patrol car that came down the road with its lights on, but no siren. And it was headed towards Painesville. He said up until this point, the gun wasn't loaded, which 
pissed me off so much. Because he could have turned and ran. Mm-hmm. <sighs> he could have done anything. And at that point, like up until this point, the trauma, the horrific acts, that was real. But the it did not have to end the way it did. He said that he told Jacob to turn around because he had to go to the bathroom and he loaded the revolver with two bullets and shot once, but it didn't line up. So he fired again. The gun went off, but Jacob was still standing. So he shot him again. Once he confirmed that Jacob was dead, he left. He just left him there. And I read the entire court statement, like the transcript of the prosecutor asking the questions back and forth. And I was sobbing, sobbing. Because he says everything so matter of fact, and it's just knowing he's not getting charged for this just makes me sick. Yeah. He said he returned a few hours later to bury him about 100 yards away. He realized that the shovel he brought wasn't big enough, so he knew that there was a construction company next door, so he stole a bobcat. Jesus. Yeah, stole a bobcat. So this is around midnight. He buried Jacob in the hole that he had dug with a bobcat, returned the bobcat, and then left. What makes me, because he's trying to paint this image like I didn't, that wasn't my plan. Yes, it was. But a year later, to the day, to the hour, he returned. Of course he He did. He noticed Jacob's jacket was starting to show in the ground. So he dug him back up, put his remains in a bag, and moved them. What? Across, he moved the remains across the street to the farm where his remains were found 26 years later. And to note, one, if you do this in a panic, you're not going to know exactly where you were. You're not going to be able to take them exactly back to the place 26 years later. Yeah. You knew exactly where you would go and what you would do. And you had thought about it so much for a year that when you went back and saw it, you had already planned the next spot. Yep. Prior to sentencing, sentencing the judge heard victim impact statements from his entire family he had an older sister who said that she felt guilty because she couldn't protect her younger brother his youngest sister said that she still can't hear the sound of helicopters without having a panic attack the one that struck me the most I mean, other than like his mom which I'll get to that in just a second but was from Aaron he literally grew up and left the country to escape what had happened that night. And he said, it caused me to push people away, to be scared, to cry. I've lived every day thinking that I was the monster that night. I was the coward that left my friend. I was the coward that ran away. Every day with believing that me running was a choice during all of these years, every decision I made in life revolved around Jacob and the guilt I felt because I was still there. I was the last person who cared about Jacob to see him to be right next to him. And I just left him. I hated it. I hated how I left him. I'm like, (laughs) I'm like, I know me too. (sighs) His mom told him that she had, he had the, he made the choice. He loaded the gun, especially if it wasn't loaded, that he made the choice to end her son's life and that she had spent more time searching for him than she had to raise him. And that like, His dad was a chiropractor and said that his business suffered afterwards because a lot of people thought he had something to do with it because he did not know how to handle his emotions in interviews. So he was very stoic and he didn't say much. And it had a lot of people thinking that like he had something to do with it. Yeah. 
So he was sentenced to the maximum he could be for the child pornography charges, which is 20 years. In addition, the plea deal will allow state authorities to seek his civil commitment as a sexual predator at the end of his federal prison term, which means that at the end, authorities could be the state authorities can be like, uh, we should keep him because he's a sexual predator, which is what's gonna he's never gonna Good. I would be very I'm, surprised. Oh in his sen- in sentencing Heinrich, Judge Tunheim, Tunheim, I don't know how to pronounce that, Tunheim said We won't pretend that this crime and sentence is about child pornography. It is also about the changing, changing the lives of so many children and parents who prayed for Jacob's return and also feared you coming out of the dark. Every child knows the story of Jacob Wetterling. You stole the innocence of children in small towns in the cities of Minnesota and beyond. So he is currently serving a sentence in a federal prison in Massachusetts where I hope he's having the worst time of his life every day. He'll be 73 when he may be released. He um he's in Massachusetts and not Minnesota. Mm-hmm. No, because he has to go to a federal prison because he was charged. Oh okay. like federal wise. Um Patty still is a huge advocate. She's in her 70s now, too. And um she actually ran for Senate on a Democrat ticket. Uh I think in 2000 something. I can't remember the exact date, but Maybe it was 2004 because Barack Obama was a senator at the time and he gave her $1,000 for her campaign. Good for him. Did she get elected? No, she lost to the Republican. <laughs> yeah. This is – I just don't – like they had – there were so many opportunities for him to be caught prior to this. And then for him to be like – he To continue to think he had the right to like – abuse i mean because that's what he was doing he was still abusing children even if it wasn't like direct contact and you will oh you will never con- convince me that he stopped no spent no 20 way. years after that like being like okay i'm just I'm gonna clean yeah no yeah no way there are kids out there that couldn't tell or didn't tell that this guy had something mm-hmm. to do with for sure and jared refused to like make a statement which he said he had nothing – there was nothing that he needed to hear him say, which he's right. Yeah. But the transcript, because it's obviously like you can't tell emotion. I can't read what – like the tone of things, but it was so matter of fact and like – To the blank, point. And he knew all of the details so well that you can tell it's something he's just fantasized like ruminated about. on it. Ugh. And it just makes me want to shank him. And he looks like we'll obviously post pictures, but he looks like every man that you would be scared of walking down the street. And I think that, like in small towns, I mean, even in situations like with your case, it does change a town because it changes it's like, how you like watch your kids. You know, people and, go to small towns specifically so that their kids can have like that that come in when the lights come on kind of mentality. Yeah, and I'm sure that. We could interview hundreds of people from All Blackford. Over. Yeah. Well, even like Blackford, when you were abducted and say, how did it change what you like? How you how, were your kids walking down the street following Megan's abduction? Yeah. Or, you know, like how they were saying, like, kids didn't ride their bikes. It's you steal innocence of an entire town. And to, I don't believe that he didn't have the gun loaded. 
I think he knew exactly what he was going to do because he almost got caught with Jared because he took his mask off and he like he Jared saw his face and he knew exactly what he was going to do. He knew that if he knew that uh, Jacob would be able to identify him because they had he detailed like when he was talking about the assault, like he didn't he didn't have anything on. So he Jared would or Jacob would have been able to identify him. And I just don't think he wanted to get that close to being caught again because he's disgusting. I cannot believe that he got, like, pinged for so many things. So many things. It's not just, like, a oh, one thing. It's, like, tons of things. So many things. Tires, the shoes, the clothes, the fibers. Like, that was what got me because that was literally the thing in my case that, like, sealed yes. it. That was the thing that they were, like, this is concrete evidence that you were in this vehicle and this mm-hmm. is what's happening now. And that's so unfair to, to Jared. Jared. Yeah. And it, and it's also uh, unfair to all of the other boys who had yeah, went. Yeah, absolutely. Like who had went to the authorities. Like, you know. Who had one, no closure for 30 years. No. And like you can see the effects of sexual assault on boys. One, a boy who is sexually assaulted as a child is five times more likely to sexually assault someone else. Yeah. It's a, it's a, like, it's sad. It's especially if they have no therapy, they have no way to like cope with it. They have no closure. In that time, the eighties and nineties, they Mm -hmm. weren't, you know, it wasn't. You, the statistics of like boys growing up to do drugs and, you know, just not having a good outcome following being sexually assaulted. And one of the reasons is because they're, it's especially back then, it was not taken as seriously. There was that mantra of boys can't be raped, boys can't be assaulted. Like, and it's, yeah. It's awful that it's like, oh, well, he just groped you. That's not enough. Sorry. Yeah. Like, suck it up. You know what happened to me? That kind of, ugh. Ugh, that makes me feel sick. This whole case made my stomach hurt. It's awful. In addition to tearing up in my little eyeballs, my stomach was, like, cramping. That's, it was a tough one. And I, I started off researching this case because, honestly, your reel that you made where it's like 50 years of forensic evidence. I was like, that's how this case was solved. I mean, it took yeah. 26 years, but then I, and I had started like writing the beginnings of it. And then like, you know, you start getting into like the more details. And I was like, fuck, this is awful. So sorry to everyone that like I put you through that, but it's just, sorry you tuned in, but it also <sighs> makes me proud as proud of the human race in general, because I feel like I know millennials and like people around our age get like Gen X. I know there's a lot of shit that gets said about us, like whatever, but I feel like sexual assault, sexual harassment, men and women victims, I feel like we as a generation take it more serious than our parents did. And I'm so proud that, like, we've gotten to this point. I know there's still a lot of work to be done, but I'm proud that, like, one, women have the voice to be like, hey, that wasn't appropriate. You can't do that to me. And that moms and parents of, like, young boys can be like, that's still just as bad. Like, you still – 
I mean, I have the talks with my kids, like the boys all the time, like, hey, it's not okay for someone to look at you or touch you if you don't want that. Like, that's still, it's not just girls. So teaching consent and how it looks and what it definitely doesn't look like. And I mean, it's the, the case itself is horrifying, but like without Patty, we may not have sexual sex offender registry. Yeah. And that has saved so many people and that it's, you know, Megan's law like was built from that, that, you know, it's just like each step because like she was murdered by a sex offender who moved across the street and they weren't notified. Yeah. And then obviously like Adam Walsh, that whole, like, that's an awful one. So yeah. Which, and Patty had like, I'll end with, Patty said the hardest thing that she has struggled with this is the fact that there were so many cases prior to Jacob, so many victims prior to Jacob that she doesn't see, she doesn't know what the difference was. Like she doesn't see like what made Jacob the one where he had to escalate. Well, it just, I feel like that's just what happens. Like they get away with it for so long Mm -hmm. and they think they can get away with more. Like, cause at first it was groping and then he got people into his car and then what's the next step after that, you know? Mm -hmm. And he did, he almost got caught cause he was questioned pretty quickly in Jared's case. But the misinformation about the um, luggage rack, which he could have had a luggage rack. I don't know if investigators know this, but you could take those off. Yeah, maybe they were. I mean, in road trip days, you know, they were built onto cars. They were built on the yeah. top of them. Do you know what car? What, what kind of car was it? Uh, you know, I'm not too sure. Okay. No big deal. Just debating whether or not it, had, it could have had a built-in luggage rack. Ah, yawn. Sorry. Mm, but that's... This will come out in June. So happy June, everybody. <laughs> that's it for today. Thank you all so much for listening to Gruesome True Crime with me, Connie, and Meg. We appreciate every single one of you. We truly do. If you actually like us and you're not just trying to seduce and murder us... You can follow along or see extras from the show on our Instagram at Gruesome Podcast. Or if you want to tell us our skin would make a nice lampshade or if you have follow-up questions about the episode, follow the form on our website, gruesomepodcast.com and email us. We love hearing from you guys. You can listen to Gruesome at the links listed on that website or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you normally get your podcast bill. Thank you again. Be sure to subscribe, check your back seat before you get into your car, and remember that on Wednesdays, we're we're gruesome. gruesome. Bye. Bye.